Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 17. Joshua chapter 17. If you need a Bible this morning, we have a couple good-looking men who are going to make their way to the back, and they'll uh, give you a Bible if you just put your hand up there. They'll make sure that you can follow along with us as we go throughout this section. We're going to be jumping around a lot today, so you're definitely going to want your Bible uh, with you close by. But today we are wrapping up uh, part three in our three-part series here through Joshua chapter 13 to 21. Really been tackling this as a whole section and looking at it uh, through different lenses. But all those lenses, understanding the faithfulness of God that stands at the forefront. So you remember two weeks ago we talked about God's faithfulness uh, displayed through his gracious provision. How he provides the people uh, with the land that he had promised for them uh, for generations. Uh, he provided for them the opportunities of justice and opportunities of worship of himself. Uh, so that full on display there a few weeks ago. And then last week we looked at God's faithfulness displayed through the use of his faithful servants, uh, two men, Caleb and Joshua, who we really looked at closer and saw the way that God works through humble, dependent, obedient servants like these men. And today, we're going to take a little bit of a unique turn. Uh, we are going to close our study of these nine chapters, and as we do so, uh, a close look at it will show that we've really, for the most part, seen a very positive outlook. Uh, if you were to look at these chapters and you were to read them, you would see that 95% of the time, things are really good. They're really positive. We see that there's great success in the Israelites receiving and inheriting their land, but there is still that other 5%. And while that is certainly a, a small number, it is large in its impact. And we have the necessary obligation to look at that together. And today we have the uh, unfortunate but necessary job of examining the dark cloud of Israel's unfaithfulness, even despite God's faithfulness. So let's look at that together this morning from Joshua chapter 17. Again, we're going to be jumping around a bunch, but I, I found a passage that I think encompasses a lot of what we're going to talk about here this morning. So if you would, please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. And we're going to look at this morning, Joshua 17, and I'm going to pick up in verse 12. Really catapulting into a section here. This is when the Lord is allotting uh, land to the tribes of uh, Ephraim and to Manasseh, so tribes of Joseph. And this is kind of the end of that section. And it says in verse 12, Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves for the forest and clear the ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. 
And the people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, but those in Beth Shean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and to Manasseh, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is forced, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Then the whole congregation, chapter 18, verse 1 here, then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. And there remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you? That's where we're going to stop this morning. You can be seated and we'll pray and ask now for God to bless our time as we study together. So indeed, Father, we do ask now for your kindness on our time of of meditation. We want to unpack these scriptures. We want to uh, better understand, Lord, what took place, what transpired. And we want to do that not just for our own insight, but we want to do so, Lord, so that we would better know, Lord, how we are prone to unfaithfulness in our own lives. We want to be able to see how we are prone to wander in the same ways that the Israelites were prone to wander. And so help us to be humble this morning and to see ourselves in this story and to be on guard for the ways that sin is allowed to persist in our lives. I pray that, Lord, you would be glorified through this so that we could walk away a changed people, a people who are humbled again in light of your faithfulness, but also a people who, Lord, desire to walk in your ways in greater faithfulness to you. So we pray for your favor as we seek to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, between my opening comments and the scripture that I just read for us, it is abundantly clear that the subject that is before us this morning is quite sobering. It reminds us that even in the daily work of following God by faith, we still mess up. We still fall short. Life is far from a cakewalk, is it? So what I hope to show you in our our study this morning is we're just going to kind of jump right into it here. It's this idea that God displays his faithfulness to his people despite their unfaithfulness to him. That God displays his faithfulness despite the fact that he has a people who constantly show themselves to be unfaithful. It's very much the nature of grace as we will unpack and we'll see. And yes, the story of Joshua is going to end with the people in the land. The story is going to end and they are going to be dwelling. They are going to be inheriting. They are going to be persisting in the land that has been given to them. But what we discover over the span of these nine chapters is that Israel is also starting to waver in her faith. Uh, The people are growing tired and apathetic and even discontent. All of this proves to be a dangerous ground to God's people. 
and as dangerous to them as it is still to us generations, centuries later. So let's explore that together this morning. Let's, let's better unpack what exactly is happening in this section here. And I want us to see how the Israelites prove themselves to be unfaithful in two different ways. And the first way that we see that is he, that they don't deal with the Canaanites completely. Uh, the language of what God had called the Israelites to do was to destroy these people completely. And what we find out in this section is that they do not carry that out. Uh, look back with me, if you will, back at chapter 13 for a moment. And I'm going to have us look at the four main areas that this is drawn out. And I want us to see that within these, we see a little bit of a different uh, way in which they don't deal with this completely. And so in chapter 13, verse 13, I think here we see uh, a failure on their part due to slothful indifference. Look at chapter 13, verse 13. It says, Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machathites. But Geshur and Maketh dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Here we see the failure on the part of those two and a half tribes of, of Gad and, and Manasseh and Reuben who are to the east who had give, been given land east of the Jordan River. And it's interesting here to, to see that the two groups that are, are listed in this verse here, the Geshurites and the Mechathites, are actually listed in chapter 12, verse 5, as territories that had already been defeated by Moses, which means, again, that uh, they have gained control over this area, but they had not yet completely driven the people out. In other words, there was still work to be done. And that is important because of what we learned back in Deuteronomy chapter 20. God had given this instruction to the Israelites to eliminate these people because, verse 18, or verse 18 there, that they may not teach you to do according to their ways, to their abominations. The reason this is such a big deal is that they don't want the Israelites, God does not want the Israelites to follow in the ways of the people. He knows that his people are going to be easily influenced if they do not deal with this. But when you look at the response of these two and a half tribes, verse 13 stands out as a blatant disregard. This is what we would call the sin of omission. They knew what they were supposed to do, but they did not do it. In fact, it says there, they did not. And as such, these Canaanites reside among the Israelites, and the Israelites seem to just accept that. They don't really seem to care all that much. There seems to be a, a casual lack of concern on their part. And that's the exact nature of indifference. Indifference lacks concern or care for what should be considered important, particularly to God. Uh, but that's obviously not the only failure we see in this section. If you jump over to chapter 15, verse 63, I believe we see the failure on Israel's part due to human inability. Look at verse 63 of chapter 15. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. 
Here the failure is not due to a lack of effort necessarily, but a lack of ability. It says they could not drive them out. Now on the surface, this would certainly sound a little bit confusing to us. After all, what has God promised throughout this conquest journey? He was the very one who told the Israelites, I will be with you. In fact, back in chapter 13, he said in verse 6, I will myself drive these people out. And so naturally, when you read verse 63 of chapter 15, you're asking the question, so what gives? But I think here's where we see that the promise was only so good as the Israelites remaining dependent and obedient. After all, that's what God said to Joshua in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, right? Where he tells him to be obedient to his ways, to meditate on his laws, to walk according to those statutes. And then you will find good success. As one commentator puts it, he says, this was, in effect, disobedience evidencing a lack of faith since God had promised to be faithful and fight Israel's battles. I think that's true here, and I think it's true of the next two examples, but it's a reminder to us of the struggle and the temptation to fight in our own strength rather than to depend on God. Or to want victory in this life, to want successes, and yet not want to do the simple work of obedience in daily life. Such is what is meant when we talk about human inability. Remember, the formula for success in the book of Joshua is what? Success equals trust plus obedience. Trust and obey. And we see a lack of that here in chapter 15. And as we move over to chapter 16, verse 10, we see another failure. We see a failure, but this time due to foolish compromise. Verse 10 of chapter 16. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Now, here the Ephraimites want to make you feel a little bit okay because even though they don't drive out the Canaanites, they subject them. They, they put them to forced labor. And in many ways, you could see this on their part as this is a noble cause, right? We're not going to eliminate them, but we are going to still, we're going we're to suppress them. We're going we're gonna to put them into forced labor. That can sound somewhat similar to what they did to the Gibeonites back in chapter 9 when they were deceived by the Gibeonites and their trickery. But understand this morning, this is not a positive reflection. The Ephraimites were called to obey God by driving out the Canaanites, not accommodating for them. Not only did they do this, they foolishly make accommodations for them to be laborers in their midst. This is the nature of compromise. It finds a middle ground between complete elimination and complete accommodation or complete integration. And as such, it forms a partnership that seems manageable on the outside. It seems harmless. 
But by not destroying the inhabitants of Gezer completely, the Canaanite influence kept its foot in the door. And we're going to see how that has devastating consequences. This is utter foolishness on the part of the Israelites who knew better than to do this. And this is further seen in the final act of failure on their part when we read in chapter 17 of their failure due to prideful control. Their failure due to prideful control. We read this at the opening, verses 12 through 13, that the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Uh, There is so much going on in these verses, but once again we see the inability on the part of Manasseh to drive out the Canaanites. And it even says here, these Canaanites were more scrappy, they were more stubborn. It says here, it uses that language of they persisted, they fought back. But we see almost every error at play by the Israelites in this final account. Disobedience, inability, and compromise. And yet it is unique when you look at what verse 13 says, because it says the people of Israel grew strong. They were strong, they were powerful, they were mighty. And yet they could not drive out these Canaanites, so they too allowed them to dwell as forced laborers. Here the Israelites see the Canaanites as an opportunity that can be controlled and managed rather than a persistent threat that must be destroyed. E.R. Clendon says it this way, they chose to tolerate wickedness and to use for their own purposes that which God had devoted to destruction. Dale Ralph Davis says it another way. He says they had the power to expel them at Yahweh's direction, but chose to retain them for their own advantage. And that is exactly what pride does. It seeks to control the issue rather than dealing with it accordingly. As such, the Israelites sowed the seeds that would doom them for generations to come. And if that sounds too dramatic on my part, then I ask you to do a favor and turn over in your Bible just a few pages to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1. And I want you to look, again, just one book, a few chapters away from this. Look with me at verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Acho. 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. You see the common thread here. This is an even more detailed recap of all these failures. And what is the summary of it? In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. 
And I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. How do you think God views their compromise? These small failures lead to big consequences for Israel. And as such, this section of Joshua serves in many ways as the preface to the book of Judges, one of the most disturbing and challenging books of failure in all of the Bible. Israel's lack of obedience has a ripple effect for generations to come. But there is more to the nature of Israel's failure in these chapters. Not only did the Israelites show their unfaithfulness by not dealing with the Canaanites completely, they also show it by not receiving their inheritance thankfully. They don't receive their inheritance thankfully. And that, again, going back to chapter 17 is what we read about earlier. And I think the first way we see this ingratitude expressed is by the fact that these people, especially the Ephraimites, expect more than they've already been given. They expect far more than they've already been given. Look at what verse 14 says. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people since all along the Lord has blessed me? The more I've read that verse over the last week, and I've read it several times, it just, it just reeks of complaint and entitlement, doesn't it? They grumble because, after all, it's not their fault they're such a numerous people. It's not their fault, after all, that the, the Lord had just blessed them oh, so abundantly with so much already. I mean, do you hear the, the entitlement in that? <laughs> if only the Lord wasn't so gracious to give us so much, then we wouldn't have this issue. Reminds me of Adam in the garden, right? Lord, if only you hadn't been so gracious and given me a helpmate who could come alongside me, flesh of my flesh and bones of my bones. If only you hadn't given me so much, then I wouldn't be in this predicament. You see, to these people, they feel like they had been shortchanged in terms of how much land they had received this request is ungrateful on numerous levels. First of all, when you consider the size of the land they had already been given. Uh, look at the map again here. If you look at, we're talking about uh, the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim there. So if you look at Manasseh all the way across the top region there, that's a pretty significant amount of yellow. And then Ephraim below that, I mean, these are, these are sizable lands that they've been already given. But not only that, probably the, the piece of this that's even more concerning is the fact that God was the one who had given them this land. 
God was the one who had apportioned this land specifically to these people. He is the God who oversees the distribution of the land. And so due to this, their issue was not so much with Joshua as it was with God himself. They are showing themselves to be discontent with what they had been graciously been given by God. They believed that they deserved far more while forgetting the very fact that they had already become recipients of far more than they ever deserved in the first place. But that's not the only way they don't receive it, thankfully. I think we also see in the fact that they forget how, they had previ- how God had previously provided for them. Uh, Joshua suggests here that these tribes clear out extra space in the hill country to accommodate for their extra size. And we're going to talk about that more in a moment. But the response of the people in this section is so interesting because they talk about, well, the Canaanites, uh, they're numerous and they're, they're big and they have chariots of iron. It, it's just, it's too big of a task for us. Now, Notice how that stands in contrast to what we learned last week with Caleb. Do you remember Caleb's response when he heard that there were still giants in his land to be conquered? What was his attitude? Great, bring them on. Let's do this. Let's take this land. Here you have the Ephraimites saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa. Do you guys remember who these people are? They have have iron chariots. There's no way we could go up against them. Let me ask you, is this the first time the Israelites have encountered Canaanites with iron chariots in the book of Joshua? No. You go back to chapter 11, they made a big display of how the Canaanites had chariots, and God saw that as nothing. It's no big deal. How quick these people had abandoned the peace that comes from knowing that their God fights for his people when they rely on him. If their first error was too high of expectations, their error here is too low of trust. Like we saw earlier, their inability is due to their self-reliance for victory. This lack of gratitude comes when God's people lose sight of his gracious provisions that he has provided for them in the past. And I think the final way that we see this ingratitude on the part of the people is that they is that they hesitate and they hesitate to take hold of God's blessings here we see a form of dangerous laxity on the part of the seven tribes when we get to chapter 18 and Joshua is asking them how long are you going to put off going in to take possession of the land and that was already kind of hinted at earlier even in his response Response to the Ephraimites. He's saying, listen, if you need more land, if you need more space, go into the hill country. What are you waiting for? It's there for the taking. Go do it. The land is theirs, yet there is a certain unwillingness to fully take hold of what God has provided. That that verbal idea of put off going in shows some idea of persistent disengagement. And the, wor- the root of that word is actually the same word that's used in chapter 1, verse 5 of God when he tells the Israelites, I will not let go of you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. It's that same idea. So here what we see is the Israelites on their part being 
slow to take hold or to grasp, to hold on to God's good gift that he has given to them. They're at risk of letting it slip through their fingers. I mean, think about this for a moment. We're, we're now, especially with the snow, we're into the Christmas season, right? If you think about it as, as, a, as a gift giver, if you were to, on a holiday, give a Christmas present to maybe one of your children, maybe to a friend, another family member, and they were to say to you, that's really awesome, thank you. Could you just set it to the side over there and I'll, I'll make sure I, I get to it later. And a couple hours go by, that present is still sitting there and you as the gift giver are wondering, are, are they going to open it? And another day goes by and then another day and you're left wondering, do they really appreciate the gift because they're not really showing that they're all that interested in it? That is a far cry from expressing gratitude to the giver of the meaningful gift. God's gift to Israel was meant to be a stimulus towards greater faith and obedience, and instead they were treating it like a tranquilizer that justified them slowing down and taking it easy. And as such, Joshua has to take them literally by the hand almost and say, let's go, come on, we're, we're going we're gonna to take this land together. I'm going to pull you along to get you to move forward. So as we already know from the previous weeks, the Israelites do indeed receive their promised inheritance. They do, by the end of this, have their land under their control. The land is fully divided and all the tribes are settled in place. But still, these brief few verses over the course of nine chapters show that a virus is starting. These seeds of, of compromise and ingratitude will only grow with time. And within a single generation, God's people will turn away from the very one who has been so faithful to them. And they begin a spiral and a cycle in the book of Judges that constantly shows rebellion, disobedience, and then crying out to God to deliver them, which he does, only to have the cycle repeat over and over and over again. All because of what starts right here. And it's because of that that we cannot take the principles of these chapters lightly. There is so much for us to humbly consider as we look at the warnings present in Israel's unfaithfulness. And I'm going to just boil them down to three points for you to consider this morning. The first of which is this, that small compromises lead to big consequences. That small compromises lead to big consequences consequences we learned early in our study of Joshua that a, a proper application of the, the Joshua text is important especially when it comes to the relationship of the Israelites to the Canaanites the wrong perspective would be to say, you know what, uh, the application of that is if anybody doesn't worship the Lord then we just need to eliminate them, right? That's, that's a wrong application. So don't walk away from this this morning and saying, well, if somebody doesn't worship the one true God, if they're worshiping someone else, that means we need to kill them. Wrong application, okay? We got that clear in case we needed a rehearsal or a reminder from last time. 
but the appropriate application is understood through that lens of Deuteronomy 20, verse 17 and 18, particularly verse 18, the fact that the reason they needed to be removed from the land was so that the people of Israel would not do according to the ways of the Canaanites. The Lord knew that if their influence persisted in the land, that God's people would be tempted to go astray, to wander after those things if they were there. And so we see in the Canaanites sinful temptation personified or pictured. In other words, God calls for us to deal with sin radically and seriously or if I could put it even more simply or more boldly, to put sin to death. That is why we must learn from the mistakes of the Israelites today. Each failure we covered this morning reflects a heart response that is disobedient to God's command to take sin seriously. Perhaps you are displaying a, a slothful indifference towards your sin. You know what God has said in his word. You know what he has commanded you to do. And yet you just, you just don't feel all that concerned by it. You're just really not all that bothered by it. And so you just don't do anything with it. Or maybe you are struggling with human inability and trying to fight your sin in your own strength. You try harder, uh, but your effort lacks faith in God or support from his people, the church. And you're so self-reliant and stuck in your own ways that you're unwilling to consider ways that you can just surrender it to the Lord or to invite other people into your life to help you. Then again, many of us are guilty of just foolish compromise. Recognizing that sometimes it feels far easier to just give in rather than just to keep fighting. And you allow yourself to indulge and to vent or to suck them on a regular basis and you allow that sin to maintain a constant foothold in your life. Or maybe you, in your pride and in your foolishness, think that you can just control your sin. Rather than kill it, you, you manage it because you believe somehow you are strong enough, that you are mature enough to handle it. And you come up with all kinds of justifications for it. You know those shows or those movies have inappropriate content in them, but it doesn't bother me. I, I, I can handle it. Or you say that you're not struggling in your relationship with that other person, but the bitterness seeps through in every conversation. But you say to yourself, it's no big deal. I, I, I've managed, it, it's water under the bridge. Do not be deceived, dear brother or sister. Small compromises do lead to big consequences. What may have seemed to the Israelites, Israelites like small acts of disobedience turned into a large national crisis for decades resulting in wars, famines, and immense suffering. So stop trying to control your sin and start fighting your sin. 
take the mindset of Paul in Colossians 3 where he says, put to death, therefore, what is worldly in you. Don't entertain it. Don't try to manage it. Put it to death. Fight it. Like Jesus in the Beatitudes, radically amputate sin. Don't literally amputate your arm or your eye, but do whatever you need to do to remove that influence from your life that you may not stumble. The enemy would love nothing more than for you to take one of these wrong approaches to dealing with your sin. And so my encouragement to you this morning is that we would be a people who take sin seriously by dealing with it completely. But secondly, I need you to see that faithfulness to God requires a thankful heart. That faithfulness to God requires a thankful heart. And this is appropriate coming off our Thanksgiving holiday here. (laughs) I was reminded a few weeks ago, our, our girls talked about how they came home from school and they talked about how it was National Kindness Day. And I just, it made me chuckle because I had to remind them, well, you know, as a Christian, every day is Kindness Day. In the same way that for Christians, even though we have a celebration every year about Thanksgiving, which I am very grateful for, every day is a day that we give thanks to the Lord, that we cultivate a grateful and thankful heart. I've come to see over the years that gratitude is one of the greatest weapons in the Christian arsenal because a heart that is satisfied in God is not quick to look for satisfaction elsewhere. It goes back to what we saw a few weeks ago with the Levites, that God himself was their portion. He was for them their satisfaction. Consider the struggles of the Ephraimites in this account. They thought they deserved far more than they had already been given. But do you sometimes feel that way, honestly? Perhaps a sense of entitlement for how you feel your Christian life should go? Do you somehow think that you deserve more comfort and less suffering? Do you feel like you deserve children who are better behaved and come with less issues? Fill in the blank however you want, but do you feel like because you're a Christian, you deserve X? All the while forgetting that you have received forgiveness of sin and adoption into God's family. Maybe like the Ephraimites, you suffer from spiritual amnesia, forgetting all the ways that God has provided for you in the past when you encounter trials of various kinds. Gratitude always keeps in mind God's faithful provision. Not only that, gratitude also empowers obedience, which is what the seven tribes in chapter 18 lacked. Too often we become lazy, apathetic, or indifferent because we have misunderstood God's grace. Yes, grace means we no longer have to work to earn God's favor, but when properly understood, grace means that we get to live out the abundance of our gratitude to the Lord. It is not an obligation, it is a celebration. It is an opportunity So Christian, begin each day by reminding yourself of who you are in Christ Jesus. Remember that you have been saved from the eternal wrath of God and you have been adopted into his family. You are now a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. Let that fill you with praise. 
And allow that gratitude to empower your worship of him day by day after day. And let's end here, finally, by reminding ourselves that God remains faithful even when we are not. I think it's appropriate to end with a note of hope here today. Because if you have listened closely, it's only fitting that you probably have felt some level of conviction Maybe even guilt or shame, I don't know. But the story of the Israelites is one that constantly shines light on God's faithfulness to them, despite their constant unfaithfulness to him. We've seen that in the book of Joshua. We we will see that in the book of Judges. We see that in the period of the kings. We see that in the fact that they go into exile and God still is faithful to his people to bring them back and then for hundreds of years to leave them wondering but then to send them a savior, a Messiah, right? God's story to the Israelites is constantly one of him remaining faithful to a people who is unfaithful to him. And the reality is that God does not let go of those who are his. And that's true for those of you who are in Christ here today. The hope for you and the hope for me is that even when we fall short of God's glory, which we will still do, he remains faithful. And we see that in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, that he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us. Not because we deserve it, but because of who our lives are united to by faith. Because our lives are united to Christ Jesus, who stands ready as our advocate to forgive us. Church, God stands ready to cleanse us of all unrighteousness when we come to him with a humble heart. The good news for all of us is that we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous, who intercedes on our behalf. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful. All praise be to God who remains faithful to his people despite their unfaithfulness to him. So Father, that is what we come to praise you for. The fact that you are a God who stays true to us even when we mess up, even when we fall short, Lord. As this passage in 1 John reminds us, we, we cannot confess that we have no sin. Lord, even though we have been saved, even though we have been redeemed, we still recognize the struggle with sin. And there is guilt that still remains. But the good news for us is that if we confess our sins, if we strive to walk in the light, we know that you are faithful. And that you will cleanse us. You will allow us to maintain that right relationship with you. Your your grace, as we've seen this morning, is, is far greater than we can even imagine. Far greater than anything that we have ever deserved. And so we just want to end by saying thank you, God. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. For giving us far more than we ever could have hoped for or imagined. And certainly far more than we ever deserved. And we give you the praise for that today in Christ Jesus. Amen.